Welcome to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter, here with Dr. Suzanne Greer. Did your kid ever make in elementary school like a cake or a brownie that was supposed to resemble a cell, like with little endoplasmic reticulum toppings and stuff like that? I think he made something in a box. We didn't get in to a box. It. My kid did that a couple times, I think. And I guess it's just a little more complicated than that. You spoke with, in an interview we're about to hear, Dr. Isaac Klein. He's the American Cancer Society Layla Rohani Postdoctoral Fellow. His grant was specially funded by the Rohani family and friends. He's a physician scientist at Dana-Farber Cancer Center and the Whitehead Institute at MIT. He sees patients, breast cancer patients, and in the lab, he's trying to tease out how a cell is organized and structured. And yes... Turns out it's a little more complicated than some Twizzlers and peanut butter on top of a cake. <laughs> Turns out it's more than some Twizzlers on top of a cake. But you're right. The inside of a cell is so incredibly complicated. I think a lot of people think about cells as being kind of like outer space where things are just kind of zooming around. And it's not like that. It is this really densely packed area with thousands and thousands of proteins and nucleic acids. And I mean, that would be all fine, except that cells have to organize all of these structures so that they can accomplish all the things that happen inside a cell. Um, transcription and splicing and cell division. So how does that happen? So our conversation with Isaac is so cool because it is all about a fairly newly identified way for cells to organize called condensates. And basically our conversation is all about how do you get the right proteins and molecules to the right place at the right time. And because we're interested in cancer, this is a especially important when we think about cancer drugs and delivery. So the story that Isaac is going to take you through is so beautiful and fascinating. I think you will love it. And I think that ultimately our understanding of how drugs move into these condensates is going to absolutely revolutionize our understanding of cancer drugs. So join us. It's a, it's a fantastic conversation. Good morning, Isaac. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Ah, you're so excited to learn more about what you've been up to over the past year. Um, so let's just let, let's start off by sharing with our audience kind of where we are and why we were really thrilled to talk to you. So you and your colleagues, we were in Dr. Richard Young's lab at the Whitehead Institute, recently made what I, I can only just kind of compartmentalize as saying, a really exciting discovery and this discovery is related to the way in which cancer cells ultimately find their target inside cells but we're going to have to spend some time talking about your discovery and its implication to cancer for us to get there so you good to help us take us down this journey yeah happy to all right fantastic so let's maybe Let's talk about what the inside of a cell, if we're going to talk about like how molecules move inside a cell and proteins, and I, I think we need to understand what the inside of a cell looks like in the first place. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. I, think, yeah, I think people think about cells as just being this big squishy mass of nothing, kind of like space and 
some people think about it being like a house with different rooms. So help us understand. First of all, I, I guess two questions. So what's it like inside a cell? And then is organization a challenge for a cell? So the cell is a, is a busy, densely packed, complicated place. Um, and there are tens of thousands of different kinds of proteins, probably more, all kinds of nucleic acids. And inside a cell, those are packed in together very tightly. Uh, in order for the cell to do what it needs to live and divide, all the right molecules, the right DNA, the right protein, et cetera, has to find each other. Um, and that's where organization comes in because you want to get them to the right place at the right time. It's easier to find, um, you know, if you're looking for a date, it's easier to go to a bar where there are other people looking for dates than it is to walk around the streets hoping you find someone. So, you know, if there's one common address where everyone who's interested in doing the same thing or every molecule that's interested in interacting with each other, each other hangs out, you make the job of finding each other much easier in this crowded, complicated place. And that's, that's how I think about organization, uh, of getting the right molecules in the right place at the right time to link up with each other. And yes, this is a major challenge for cells um, to, to make that happen efficiently and consistently. I love that analogy of finding a date. And maybe, right, you wouldn't have the greatest success if you were just wandering around the street looking for someone who maybe would talk to you and hang out and have a conversation. But if you were at a bar or uh, at a restaurant or some place where you had been planned a predestined time to meet, you might have a better opportunity interacting with someone who was like-minded and wanted to accomplish the same goal. So I love that comparison. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's really great that cells have to do that too, because there are, as you said, this is a crowded space. And I don't think we always think about that, about how densely packed cells are with just all these macro materials. So thank you. Thanks for setting the stage there. Okay, so we have, you set the stage that there's a problem. You have a really crowded space inside the cell. Cells have specific things that they have to accomplish. Um, one of the things that we can think about, especially in relationship to cancer cells, is cell division. So how do cells organize all the materials and chemicals necessary for a specific goal, in this case, maybe cell division into one space. So I think a good starting place for us, because most of us, we think about, we go back to like seventh and eighth grade science. We learned that inside the cell, in order to accomplish this problem of organization, there are these compartments that are surrounded by membranes and we call them organelles and there, there are lots of different kinds of organelles inside the cell and there's some really cool and important things that happen but one of the things that your lab so the young lab and others have shown in i would say fairly recent years is that there is a tremendous amount of variety in these cellular compartments. And one of the things that I think is just crazy interesting is that some of them don't actually have membranes. And we could maybe think about membranes, and you can help me if this is an appropriate analogy, as being like the cell is a house and the membranes were 
rooms that kind of segregate the different spaces where maybe you're going to go to the bathroom to brush your teeth and go to the bedroom to sleep. So we're used to cellular organelles that have membranes. And one of the things that you study and what your discovery is nested in is that there are also these compartments that don't have membranes, no walls. So they are called um, biomolecular condensates or just condensates. So this is crazy. So tell us about these condensates. Why are they so important for organization and cells? Yeah. So, you know, to go back to the problem we talked about, we're, you know, we're thinking about the inside of a cell. We're thinking about this complicated space um, in which all of these different processes have to happen and these different molecules have to find each other. And like you said, the classical view of this has two components. One component is that there are the membrane-bound organelles, like the mitochondria and the Golgi apparatus, the stuff that you see under the microscope uh, in high school, right? And there are molecules that are compartmentalized into those neighborhoods. I, I grew up in New York City, so I kind of think of those as like boroughs, like, you know, Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, these are, you know, they're separated by water. The, all the people in those boroughs are kind of kept there by a physical boundary. Um, and then the classical, the classic model is that within those boundaries, within those boroughs or those membrane-bound organelles, millions and God knows how many molecules are flying around. And when two molecules that need to interact happen to find each other, the interaction and the reaction they have to facilitate occurs. Um, and if you think about that, that's, that's pretty inefficient because if you're in the nucleus, what's the likelihood that two molecules that just happen to need to find each other will bump into each other at the same time? So this is where the, the non-membrane bound organelle comes in. And this is the, the newer view of cellular organization that, that within these membrane-bound uh, structures, within these, we can call them boroughs of a city, uh, there are non-membrane-bound subcompartments, And I kind of think of those like neighborhoods, right? There's no, uh, pardon my, for the listeners who aren't from this New York City, but you know, there's no wall between Soho and Chinatown, but they're different. There's something different about them. Different things concentrate there. Different things happen there. Different reactions happen there. And, and, and that's the analogy that I think about um, in these membrane bound, non-membrane bound organelles. And the reason they're so important, and the reason that they've revolutionized our understanding of cell biology is because they solve the problem of how molecules find each other and stay in close proximity in order to accomplish specific biochemical reactions that are necessary for cell growth and cell division. Uh, in the young lab, and I myself as well, we're interested in the reactions that happen in the nucleus, things like gene transcription, gene silencing, splicing, and so forth. And what we're learning is that all of those interactions, all of those reactions that have to happen on DNA to make RNA, to make protein, to make the cell work, those are all happening in condensates, and they're being facilitated by this close interaction of molecules inside these non-membrane bound organelles. Okay, that's fascinating. So I think that all makes perfect sense. But one question I have 
is that how does this happen? So if you think about, like if you were to compare to maybe Soho and you think about all of the people that live there and the businesses that occur there and the vendors on the street, what keeps them there? What brings them there for those interactions, for those transactions that really define a neighborhood? So in the case of Estelle, you relate that that almost all of the really essential activities that occur in a nucleus, which again leads us back to our thoughts around cell division and things that are going to happen differently in cancer cells and normal cells. So what is it then that brings all these specific molecules and proteins, I guess, together and keeps them there in a structure that has no walls? So I guess two questions. So how do the contents of a condensate stay together? How do you keep this neighborhood together and make it work and all those awesome things happen? And then the second question would be, why do they even show up? You know, are they, is it like self-assembly where all the hot dog vendors know that like there's this specific corner in, in Soho that they should go to because everybody there loves hot dogs? So help us understand that. And maybe if there's an analogy that you could share that's better, but one of the things I've thought about is like a lava lamp where you're kind of flipping it upside down and back and forth. And it's just mesmerizing that it looks as if the structures in the lava lamp are coming together because they want to be together. So walk us through that. Yeah, so I hope the listeners don't get tired of analogies because, you know, in the new... <laughs> For a new concept, sometimes it's hard to explain it, um, explain it otherwise. But um, to the question of how these things get together, which is a, how they assemble, which is a really, a really good question. I think the best analogy that I can think of is you know, oil, oil and vinegar. Um, and imagine you're, you know, you're sitting down to an Italian dinner and the waiter brings over a plate of olive oil with little drops of vinegar in it. Um, and why does the vinegar stay together in drops? Why don't those two, the oil and vinegar, mix with one another? And the reason they don't mix with one another is because the molecules in the vinegar, which is water, have a greater affinity or interaction strength or desire to uh, stay close to one another than they have a desire to interact or affinity to interact with the oil molecules. And so because of that difference in interaction strength, that difference in preference for interactions, all of the molecules, the water that's in the vinegar get pushed together into a little, into that little droplet and the oil is kept out. And what we're learning is that biomolecules in the cell essentially behave the exact same way. So some proteins, RNA, some RNAs, some DNAs, other molecules as well, have a preference to interact with each other as opposed to all the other things in a cell. And when that happens, they get pushed together and form this liquid droplet in that larger cellular milieu, just like the vinegar did in that oil. And so think about how these things form. We think about a greater interaction between one group of molecules than the strength of those interactions with some other group of molecules that are outside of the droplet. And that's how they assemble. 
you asked about the, the nature of those interactions and how they stay together. And when we think about condensates forming in the cell, we mainly think about proteins mediating this behavior, not mainly, not only, but they, they play a dominant role. And the classic view of proteins, the way that scientists have studied proteins for, since the beginning of at least my memory, is that they would um, make a crystal of that protein and, for, and, and so we could picture a three-dimensional structure of it. You've probably seen pictures of this, of uh, just a protein on a page with, the, with helices and sheets and crevices and nooks and structure and so forth. But what we're learning is that there's a lot of proteins in the cell that don't really have that kind of structure. They're what we call disordered. They're kind of like big floppy noodles. And because these proteins aren't in these nice, neat packages, but rather are these big, uh, floppy, loose chains of amino acid, they can have m many, many different weak interactions with one another. And so whereas structured proteins have these very tight interactions and form these classical complexes, what we're learning now is that these so-called disordered proteins with these very weak and loose interactions are the things that form the basis of biomolecular condensates in the cell. And those are the interactions that we think hold these structures together. So to put it all together, what you have is uh, Proteins without a specific structure that are loose. Uh, so I think of them like noodles because they're, we think that they're kind of uh, ex expanded out in space and kind of in a single strand. And those disordered regions have interactions with one another that are very weak and very transient or uh, very easy to, accept, to uh, assemble and disassemble. And those weak transient interactions are what form the basis of condensates uh, forming in the cell. So, uh, first of all, we'll go back to one of the very first things you said, is that the cell is complicated. It, it It's not like outer space where, where we think of just there being this vast amount of room. I mean, this is a crowded space. It's densely packed, and there's thousands and thousands of not only proteins, but macromolecular structures that need to come together in an organized way. So I, I appreciate you sharing that first we're still learning and that one of the things that we know is that in these condensates, it seems to be proteins that are less structured, noodle-like, I love that kind of picture in my mind, that have weak interactions that are forming a basis for condensates. So one of the other things, and this gets to the crux of the discovery that you and your colleagues recently made, is that there are lots of things found actually in these condensates. So you mentioned these kind of loosely noodle-like proteins, and there are also lots of small molecules, including cancer drugs. So this may be a bit of a leap, but I think I would help our audience to understand where we're moving. So. Help us to understand what, what have you learned about how different cancer drugs are pulled in to these different condensates? Um, you mentioned the weak interactions between these noodle-like proteins, but what happens to cancer drugs? Why would they show up in these specific um, oil and vinegar type droplets? So, you know, even though a lot of this concept is new, um, 
it uses the same basic biologic principles that we've known about you know, forever. Um, so the basis of, the conden of a condensate being formed is interactions between molecules, interactions between protein, between DNA, uh, between protein and DNA and RNA. And so just as these biomolecules take advantage of standard interaction types like hydrophobic interactions or pi-pi interactions or electrostatic interactions, um, so do cancer, so do drugs, small molecule drugs. Uh, these are you know, small molecule cancer drugs are simply um, molecules that are smaller than all the biomolecules we're just talking about, but capable of all the same kinds of interactions. And so when, when I and my colleagues started this work, we simply asked, can a small molecule concentrate into a condensate using many of the same interactions that we know biomolecules are using to concentrate into a condensate? And the way that they're doing that is with all of the classic interaction types that we know about. In the manuscript we recently published, we, we focused our attention on a couple of uh, interaction types called pi-pi or pi-cation interaction types, which are specific subtypes of interactions that are particularly uh, prominent in condensate formation. But, but really, any interaction type can be utilized in theory to get a drug into a particular condensate. All right, so I think the first thing you've helped us to understand is that, yeah, small molecules, we're particularly thinking of cancer drugs, certainly can move into condensates. One of the things that I think would be helpful for our audience to understand is why would we care about that? We started our conversation thinking about cellular organization, and you said that Organization is a big challenge for cells because it's this big mess, it's a crowded space, you've got to be organized in order for specific cellular events to occur for a cell to survive. You talked about splicing and DNA replication. So are cancer drugs then able to move specifically into condensates where they would be important? So if we think about what's the function of a cancer drug would be to disrupt something that a cancer cell has to do in order to survive. So then how, how does that happen? How, how then, I guess the first question is, do they do that? Do condensates do, sorry, cancer drugs move into condensates where it matters that they're there? And then maybe help us to understand why that localization, if it happens, could be so important. Yeah. So. Um in order for a drug, any drug, but also also anti-neoplastic or anti-cancer drugs to work, th they have to find their target. Right? They, you, drugs are designed, um, developed or discovered to interact with a particular protein or interact with DNA. Uh, and if that protein or that molecule that they need to interact with is inside one of these condensates, that drug has to be able to get into that condensate to link up with its target, prevent it from acting or disrupt it in some way so that the cell, the cancer cell, will suffer some kind of consequence and ultimately die. So in order to do its job, the drug has to get to the right spot. 
in a cell where its target lies. More, more, even more important than getting to the spot, it has to get to the spot in the right quantity or the right concentration. So how much of a drug can hit its target or how effective it is in treating a cancer is directly, uh, is directly proportional to how much of that target gets occupied by the drug. And so in order to do that job efficiently, you have to get high concentrations of the drug or at least sufficient concentrations of the drug near the site where the target lies in the cell. So this understanding that drugs are getting into condensates, that they're concentrating there, and that in those condensates are targets that we want to hit so that we can kill cancer cells and cure patients more efficiently, really changes the way we think about developing drugs, discovering drugs, and optimizing how they work so that we can get high concentrations of drug in the right spot where the, where the target we want to hit is hanging out. In, our, in the work we recently published, we discovered that, in fact, this is, this is what's happening, that small molecules, drugs, on the basis of specific interactions with proteins in the condensate, can concentrate within that um, can concentrate within that compartment where their target lies and increase the amount of that target that the drug hits. The overall goal there is to figure out how to make better drugs, uh, you know, more efficient targeting of proteins and DNA will result in better therapies to kill cancer cells. I think a real world example would be really helpful. You may, you may have another one, but I was interested in your thoughts on cisplatin because it's a drug mm -hmm. that many of us have heard about. It's, it's this interesting and really, I think, fascinating drugs because it, it works on lots of different cancer and we don't entirely know why. Does your discovery help us maybe to understand how cisplatin might be able to actually focus its potency in destroying, I guess, cancer cells um, by its association with different condensates. So, yeah, cisplatin is an interesting drug. Well, all chemotherapy is kind of interesting because these are just general poisons that happen to kill cancer cells more efficiently. Cisplatin, the main target of cisplatin is DNA. So DNA is all over the nucleus and cancer cells and regular cells need to use their DNA to make RNA, to make protein, to survive. And cancer cells specifically are, are quite dependent on producing certain proteins which require the DNA. So there's lots of processes happening on the DNA in, in cancer cells. Now, cisplatin just binds DNA and disrupts things from happening on DNA. When cisplatin binds, DNA can't be copied, it can't be transcribed into RNA, it, uh, it can suffer breaks, all kinds of damaging things happen, and that's what kills cancer cells when you expose them to cisplatin. And DNA is all over the nucleus. So you would expect that when you put cisplatin on a cancer cell, it should just indiscriminately uh, bind DNA anywhere in the nucleus where it is. But when we look, that's not really what we see happens. We see that cisplatin has a preference for binding some places over others. And that doesn't 
that doesn't really make much sense because it's all just DNA. It's all the same target. But what we found is that um, there are condensates on DNA where all of these different biochemical reactions in the cell happen. So in the nucleus, there are, and pardon me if this gets a little technical, but there are condensates where transcription happens. There are condensates where gene silencing happens. There are condensates where splicing happens. And what we found is that cisplatin has this remarkable ability to get concentrated inside the condensate where transcription happens, which is the fundamental process by which uh, DNA gets turned into RNA and which is required to make proteins, which are the building blocks of the cell and, uh, and absolutely essential for their survival, including for cancer cells. And so the understanding that cisplatin can act sort of like a heat-seeking missile and go directly to these condensates where transcription's happening taught us that cancer cells might be uniquely susceptible to it because we know that cancer cells build these transcriptional condensates in front of genes that are required for a cancer cell to grow and survive. So it gives us maybe a hint as to why cisplatin and perhaps other general chemotherapy drugs are specifically useful against cancer cells, but it also gives us an indication that such specific targeting or such specific design of a drug to get to a certain compartment in a cell might be possible. That's amazing. So I, I really like your sharing with us that if you think about the nucleus, DNA is just kind of everywhere. Just kind of think about this like big wad of spaghetti that's in your drainer and it's just kind of not drainer but in your strainer it's just kind of yeah. everywhere in the cell and you might expect a drug like cisplatin that's going to have affinity for dna just to be kind of promiscuous and to be all over the place in the nucleus and bound everywhere so kind of you everywhere in that strainer with your bound to those pasta noodles. And that's not actually what happens. You see it targeted specifically to condensates. And so I would presume that an enormous goal based on your research and others would be understanding the mechanisms by which this happens so that we could, in fact, do this better for more cancer drugs, helping them to, in essence, find their targets so they can disrupt the processes that cancer cells need to survive. So is that is that something that you can imagine us doing, is using this understanding that you shared with us to actually improve drugs that are on the market now, to make them more powerful, more specific? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's what I and the folks I work with are, are working on right now. Um, the dream is to understand something that we call grammar, um, that a condensate has certain proteins in it and a small molecule drug has certain chemical features on it. And there are some chemical features that will interact with certain parts of these condensate forming proteins and concentrate the drug inside that compartment. And if we can write the dictionary, so to speak, for what those interactions are, 
which entities on a small molecule drug interact with which features on these condensate forming proteins, we can, instead of making just observations about what kind of drugs get into what kind of condensate, we can start to intelligently design drugs to get into specific compartments by matching chemical features to the features of a condensate and the interactions that are available uh, within that condensate for a small molecule to get in. So looking forward, what we'd like to do is dissect that grammar and then use that understanding to boost concentrations of drugs in these compartments in the cell, make them hit their targets more efficiently, make them better drugs, more efficient at killing cancer cells, and ultimately uh, to design better treatments for patients with cancer. Isaac, that is fascinating. And I, I love the scenario that you laid out for us that condensates have certain features, small molecules have certain features, and you are spending lots of time thinking about how to really hone these interactions so that they can come together. Um, and, and you shared lots of thoughts with us about how complicated cellular organization is. And this was just kind of a, a one more level of that. And so I love that. I, I hear the excitement in your voice and I'd really love to know, and I think our listeners would enjoy hearing, what are you most excited about right now? What's on the horizon? So I think what, what we just spoke about, this idea that, you know, that understanding how a drug gets into a condensate or gets into a compartment in the cell can, can revolutionize our understanding of how to design and optimize small molecules for cancer treatment. I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a practicing oncologist. I spend about 20% of my time seeing patients. And even though I consider my work basic science, I spend my time thinking about how we can ask questions in the laboratory that might benefit patients 10 years from now, or even sometimes longer. And looking forward uh, with this new understanding in our back pockets, I can see a time where we, where we alter a drug structure to make it more efficient in getting to the target that we want it to get into, uh, we want it to link up with in a cell. And that's, what's, that's what excites me most, that, that we might actually exploit this understanding to improve drug delivery process, to improve drug discovery, and have an impact for patients who, who, who need new therapies. So as you mentioned, Isaac, you're a clinician scientist, and I'd be really interested to know if there are ways that uh, funding from the American Cancer Society has impacted your research. Yeah, I, I'm not sure the word impacted is really strong enough to um, convey what the American Cancer Society's funding has done for my research. It, it's not just impacted it, it has been the thing that has made it possible. I I could not be in the laboratory doing this kind of work, asking these kinds of questions without the support of the American Cancer Society. It's absolutely critical uh, because you know, I spend, I spend part of my time seeing patients and I spend part of my time in the laboratory and without the funding to allow me to be in the lab uh, asking basic science questions, it, it just wouldn't happen. 
So um, the impact really can't be overstated. The funding from the American Cancer Society is what has made this work possible. Well, Isaac, we're so excited about all the really tremendous work that you've done. And, and you're right, all the really wonderful things that will come from it that will ultimately impact cancer patients. Um, so I think that's a great place for us to end is we'd really love to hear from you as far as is there a specific message that you would like to share with this group of listeners, our cancer patients and survivors and their caregivers? Yeah, I, you know, I know um, I take care of cancer patients and take care of their caregivers and take care of people when they survive cancer. And I know that it's a, um, it's a fight. And um, I just want everyone to know that just like there are uh, doctors and nurses and schedulers and infusion technicians and pharmacists in the clinic, uh, and social workers helping you and your families fight this fight against cancer, there are also people um, backstage uh, in the laboratories all over the United States and the world uh, sort of fighting a slower, slightly more invisible battle to think of the new ideas and the breakthroughs that are going to benefit patients in the long term. So um, I guess if I wanted to share something, it would be that just as um, you guys are fighting, uh, not, not giving up, you know, we are also fighting and not giving up right alongside with you, um, trying to figure out how to get better drugs to everyone who needs them. Thank you, Isaac. We're grateful for the work that you and your colleagues do and wish you the very best of luck. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.